This week's episode of Certified comes to you from ACE the OCS. This time of year, everyone is looking for practice tests to make sure they are ready for test day, and we've got an excellent suggestion to help you prepare to ace the exam. ACE the OCS is an updated practice test written for the 2021 exam with questions that feel similar to the actual test regarding their difficulty, question breakdown by body region, and content areas. The author includes several references and detailed explanations behind right and wrong answers for each question to help you learn. Please see the direct Amazon link in our show notes and order your copy today. Again, the name of the book is Ace the OCS, and you can order it directly through Amazon at the link in the show notes. This is Certified, the OCS Prep Podcast. I'm Alexis. And I'm Amanda. And we're here to help you prepare for your OCS exam. Hi, everyone. Today, um, by request, we're going to go over some elbow concepts. Uh, The elbow current concepts is very dense. It's very long, and it covers a lot of topics, some more relevant than others. Um, So, you know, we kind of had fielded some questions about this, and some people had asked us to kind of help break this down a little bit. So this information is all going to be available to you in current concepts. But today, what we're going to cover is elbow directional instabilities and the diagnoses that are related to that. So we have previously covered episodes on tendinopathies. you know, make sure that you know those. Those are very important for elbow. Um, And we'll be doing one on some additional diagnoses that are important for you to know that don't necessarily fit into one class or another. Um, Like I said, today we're going to go over the directional instabilities though. So we're going to kind of jump right in. The first one that we're going to talk about is varus instability. This is also known as radial or lateral collateral ligament insufficiency. The um, radial or lateral collateral ligament is the primary strength to the varus force at the elbow. And the secondary supports here include the common extensor tendon, the posterior lateral capsule, and its insertion into the annular ligament. Injuries to the radial collateral ligament are typically from a simple or a complex dislocation and traumatic or repetitive varus stresses. Repetitive stresses to this area with everyday activities are not as common as in cases of valgus instabilities, which we'll cover in a little bit. But one situation varus compromise may be present is in the elbow postural deformity. Um, Sometimes that can be congenital malalignment or it can be a fracture. Sometimes um, in adolescents that doesn't necessarily heal properly, they can kind of develop that deformity that that sticks with them and can cause that varus compromise. Um, Another situation is in patients with chronic overuse through weight bearing in the upper extremities, for example, utilizing crutches. So differential diagnosis for lateral elbow pain should include various posterior medial rotary instability, posterior lateral rotary instabilities, and lateral epicondalgia or epicondylitis. Epicondalgia and epicondylitis we covered in a previous episode by themselves. So what we're going to cover today are those other two differential diagnoses for lateral elbow pain. The first one is the various posterior medial rotary instability. This is also known as VPMRI. And it usually occurs following a dislocation that also compromises the radiolateral ligament and fractures the anterior medial tip of the coronoid. These patients are going to present with clicking and popping through their active range motion at the elbow. And subjectively, they're going to report symptoms that increase with lateral raising of the arm. Their symptoms are often longstanding and sometimes preceded by a trauma. 
Surgical intervention is usually the preferred management technique for these patients. However, techniques are usually surgeon specific, meaning there's not necessarily a standard approach or a cut and dry way to um, regain that stability once it's compromised. Generally, the post-operative rehabilitation for these folks should avoid shoulder abduction for the first four weeks. So again, that's the varus posterior medial rotary instability. What we're going to cover next is the posterior lateral rotary instability. This one's a little more common. It's known as PLRI, and it's the most common result of a radial collateral ligament injury. This injury typically happens in a pattern of combined valgus stress and supination with an axial compression, and it produces the rotation at that humeral ulnar joint. Symptoms can be vague and nonspecific in cases of PLRI. However, um, they're going to have that vague elbow pain and lateral elbow discomfort. They may have a clicking or snapping or a clunking that's worse with supination. And occasionally, these patients will report a sensation of giving way of the elbow when it's loaded in a flex position in a supinated forearm. So for example, when they go to pick something up or if they put their arm out and someone hands them something heavy um, where they're supinated and flexed, they may have that sensation of giving way. Um, if they report something like that, you're going to want to be thinking about the posterior lateral rotary instability. Your differential diagnosis here is going to be broad because their symptoms are going to be somewhat vast and vague in terms of pain. You also want to be on the lookout here, though, for radial tunnel syndrome, um, RCL compromise, or radiculopathy and that lateral epicondylitis. Sometimes in these folks, you may see a concurrent diagnosis. So even when they have posterior lateral rotary instability, it doesn't mean that they don't have some other, you know, maybe they have some radial tunnel um, sensitivity happening at the same time. Special tests to include during your physical exam for these folks include the lateral pivot shift test of the elbow, the push-up sign, the chair sign, and the press-up maneuver. These tests are all outlined very, very well in table eight of the current concepts. That's on page 17 to 18. Um, it outlines them in a lot of detail. It talks about the patient position. It talks exactly about what the therapist should be doing. Um, it, it can get a little clunky in terms of talking about it in a podcast episode. So I would be aware of them. If you're really unfamiliar with them, just review that chart, that table eight in the elbow current concepts, and that'll give you a little better idea. I think sometimes seeing a picture or reading it for yourself is a little easier than me just um, giving you vague descriptors. So non-operative management of PLRI um, is a little bit vague. Uh, the protocols for this are not well established in the research. Essentially, though, range-locking braces show some effectiveness for four to six weeks because that's going to allow for protective healing of those structures. The current school of thought is to provide proximal strength and movement retraining to avoid unnecessary loading to the injured structures, which includes avoiding shoulder abduction and internal rotation combined with elbow flexion and extension, which is going to create an increase in the varus forces. So a lot of it is just um, more or less understanding the mechanics there and making sure that you're not putting them in a position to compromise those tissues more so than doing a specific set of exercises or activities. Um, operative management for these folks. There are techniques utilized for both arthroscopic and open approaches. I think some of that um, is surgeon-specific or surgeon training. There's no reported statistical difference in the outcomes. The first two weeks postoperatively include range of motion restrictions, usually in a splint or a range locking brace. Range of motion restrictions, especially into extension and supination, 
can remain limited for up to six weeks. However, um, over two to six weeks, proximal strengthening is allowed. Um, braces usually discharge for these folks around eight to 10 weeks post-op, um, strengthening cannot begin until 10 weeks post-op. So even if they get rid of their brace closer to that eight week mark, you're not really cleared to begin strengthening in most cases till 10 weeks. The patient is going to be cleared for return to sport activities anywhere from four to nine months, depending on the surgeon, their progress and the level of activity they're hoping to return to essentially how competitive are, are they trying to get. So again, that kind of outlines your, um, various instabilities and the important things to note, a couple differential diagnoses there. Again, special tests for posterior lateral rotor instability. You're going to find those on page eight of your or on table eight, page 17 to 18 of the elbow current concepts. So what we're going to move into next are valgus instabilities. Um, I think these are something probably a lot of us are a little bit more common with, especially if you're working with a sport population. But Instability in this direction occurs in response to excessive valgus force beyond the tensile restraint of the ligament, and here we're talking about the ulnar or the medial collateral ligament. Injury can either be acute or insidious in onset, and if the symptoms begin acutely, the mechanism of injury is typically a fall in an outstretched hand or that foosh injury. As with a lot of injuries that occur gradually and insidiously, the mechanism is often overuse. Overhead athletes are most commonly affected due to how repetitive their activities typically occur and the high production of tensile forces throughout the overhead throwing phase. So an ulnar collateral ligament strain is greatest during the cocking and the late cocking to the acceleration phase of throwing. Elbow valgus stresses increase with increased shoulder external rotation and they decrease with greater degrees of elbow flexion during the ball release. So the anterior portion of the ulnar collateral ligament is at the most risk for compromise um, there's di different bundles and different portions of it. I don't know how crucial it is to know all of the different sections of the ulnar collateral ligament, but just know that the anterior portion is at the most risk for compromise. Patient presentation for these folks. Patients will experience median elbow pain that's often aggravated by throwing. In traumatic cases, patients may report hearing or feeling a pop at the elbow with associated tenderness over the medial aspect of the elbow. A formal diagnosis is done through imaging, typically an x-ray where the patient, patient is positioned in supine, they're going to be in full shoulder external rotation and pronation, and there's going to be, the radiologist will assess for any gapping at the medial joint line, which would indicate ligament compromise. If injury is more involved um, to include the, an avulsion fracture, ossification within the ligament, or loose bodies, those may or may not show up on plain film x-ray, so an MRI may be necessary. If, if there's some concern about how significant the UCL injury is, an MRI can also be useful in staging. Um, I don't know clinically how much that's seen. I'm sure with high-level athletes and competitive athletes, you probably see it a little bit more. I'm not sure clinically day-to-day -day how much we're seeing MRI use for um, staging of UCLs, but just know that it's an option. The physical exam. Differential diagnosis for uh, ulnar collateral ligament injury should include medial tendinopathy, valgus extension overload syndrome, radiocapetular overload syndrome, elbow osteoarthritis, and ulnar neuritis. So the feelings of instability may be greater when the patient is asked to pronate compared to supinate. So making sure that you're doing a thorough range of motion assessment is important, including pronation and supination. Um, you want to make sure you're including your screening test for tendinopathy to make sure you're not missing that. 
An upper limb tension and neural provocative signs should be included if the patient's symptoms may lead you to believe that there's neural issues. The special tests specifically for um, ulnar collateral ligament injury include the moving valgus stress test, the milking test, the valgus, and the valgus stress test. Again, these are um, outlined in a lot of detail in current concepts. That's table 11 on page 23. I would encourage you to read that because it gives a really detailed description of the patient position, what the therapist needs to be doing, and exactly what indicates a positive test. Um, different tests, sometimes it's pain, sometimes it's gapping, sometimes it's reproduction of symptoms, whatever the case may be, um, they're outlined very well there. So the first differential diagnosis we're going to touch on here in this episode is valgus extension overload syndrome. This is also known as posterior medial impingement um, with ulnohumeral compression. So essentially, this is compression of the olecranon of the ulna against the humerus with a valgus stress that generates a posterior medial impingement. This condition is commonly seen in individuals who undergo force at the elbow into hyperextension in a repetitive nature. So this can occur with or without a UCL injury or insufficiency. And in a report of reasons for arthroscopic elbow debridement to treat medial elbow pain, valgus extension overload syndrome was noted as the most common pathology seen surgically, and it accounted for 51% of the cases in this particular report, while ulnar collateral ligament compromise made up only 6% of the cases. So the point there being that, um, you know, a lot of us think, you know, clinically that it's automatically medial elbow pain that's not responsive to tendinopathy testing could be an ulnar ulnar collateral ligament compromise, which it could, but don't rule out some of these other conditions such as valgus extension overload syndrome because they are a little bit more prevalent than a true UCL compromise. Patients, um, these patients are going to present with tenderness to the posterior medial olecranon, um, limitation in passive elbow flexion range of motion, and pain with passive range of motion when they're pronated and the elbow extension are combined with a valgus force. So active range of motion into elbow extension will also be painful. Locking or catching may also be present due to osteophytes or loose bodies. Conservative treatment for these folks should include rest, use of NSAIDs, and the correction of throwing mechanics or other repetitive motions that place patients into this position. So later phases of rehabilitation should include eccentric strengthening of the elbow flexures, with a gradual progression to more forceful and rapid triceps retraining or dynamic work with the upper extremity. Um, but just note that that initial phase really needs to include the rest and the NSAIDs. And the therapy part of that really comes in for um, like a mechanical correction or activity modification, patient education, that kind of thing. Again, there's not a set protocol or specific exercises you should do until those later phases. If these patients don't improve with conservative management, they may require arthroscopic surgery. So just know that it's an option. Um, again, a lot of elbow surgeries, there's not a lot of hard and fast protocols. A lot of them are surgeon dependent and they are never, in most cases, a first line defense. Most of the time they want to try to treat it conservatively. The next differential diagnosis we're going to touch on for medial elbow here is the radial capetular overload syndrome. This is also known as a lateral compression injury. So this typically occurs in cases where the ulnar collateral ligament is compromised and the stability of the elbow complex is obtained by utilizing those secondary stabilizers. This places the radial head at an increased risk of friction and compression against the capetulum. 
So the presentation will include tenderness and sensitivity at the radial head or the lateral humerus, and symptoms will be increased with valgus forces due to the increased compression at the lateral elbow. So in adults, if this is untreated, it can lead to chondromalacia, cartilage, and bony degeneration. However, in children and adolescents who are skeletally immature, they can develop osteochondritis desiccans at the competulum if this is not addressed. So it's another one of those not super common, but don't want to miss sort of, sort of diagnoses. The next one I'm going to touch on here is little leaguer's elbow. So this is characterized as a diagnosis seen in children and adolescents that's typically associated with an apophysitis and fragmentation secondary to insufficient stability of the ossification centers. So this can progress to an avulsion fracture of the medial epicondyle as the patient continues to grow and the valgus overload continues. So we're going to typically see this in young pitchers. When working with this population, yes, it's a very specific subpopulation. Um, unless you're working in a sports or athletic clinic, you probably don't see this a lot, but it's something I'd be aware of. It's important to recognize that the number of pitches thrown has been shown to be the most significant risk factor for developing this type of elbow injury. Managing these injuries in this population requires rest from throwing and any repetitive motions and a very gradual return to sport with a limited number of pitches per game. It's also suggested that, incre that increasing the emphasis and practice on pitch types that require less skill can possibly limit injury, um, but more specific research is needed on this specific recommendation. So really, um, if you're working in a clinic like this, I think just working on getting those um, young players back down to really focus on their technique and honing in on their mechanics with less difficult pitches before they're trying to add different pitch types to their repertoire and increasing their pitch counts at the same time. Um, so let's talk here briefly about non-operative management of UCL injuries. For non-athletic populations, conservative management is typically the first step. So UCL ruptures may require mobilization, a course of rehabilitation, and activity modifications. The initial phase should include a mobilization with splinting, taking NSAIDs, and modalities to minimize the tissue irritation. And initially, patients should avoid motions that stress the medial elbow, especially anything overhead. As symptoms improve, gradual increase in shoulder and overhead strengthening can occur. There is no specific guide for rehabilitation in this population. So clinically, it's important to remember ideal mechanics and force generation at the elbow actually come from proximal regions, including the shoulder and trunk. So it's theorized that some of the overuse at the elbow is secondary to deficits in more proximal regions. Thus, to fully rehab the patient, it's important as physical therapists that we consider all joints. So basically, the thought there is if if these patients were stronger and had more stability, you know, in their scapular region, in their um, core, in their trunk would they overuse their elbow less in terms of trying to generate the force? Probably is the answer. So just making sure that even though you can't work directly at their elbow, there's probably a lot of appropriate core trunk work that you can be incorporating for them. So operative management of ulnar collateral ligaments. Um, the indications for surgery include failure of non-operative management, persistent pain and feelings of instability with or without neuritis, and consistent loss of function. So there, there are two main techniques. There's a primary repair and a reconstruction with autograft. Primary repairs are more often seen in younger athletes, but they're going to require decent ligamentous tissue so that it can't be um, too far gone, essentially. The, the tissue still has to be in decent quality, um, and therefore it's usually only appropriate in acute injuries. 
Reconstructions are typically more common since there's a higher rate of return to sport. This is classically known as your Tommy John surgery or procedures. The surgical techniques for this procedure have advanced significantly over the past several decades and now involves more muscle sparing and better fixation of the grafts. So in general, the outcomes for this have continued to improve in terms of allowing athletes to come back to higher levels of competition. Postoperatively, the patient's likely going to be placed in a brace or a splint for the first couple weeks after surgery to protect the range of motion and healing. Strengthening cannot begin for four to six weeks post-op and should progress very gradually. And throwing and sport activity should not begin for four months and return to competitive competition is not usually before nine months post-op, but could be delayed up to 12 months depending on surgeon preference, patient's progress, you know, their overall health, etc. So that essentially covers um, varus and valgus instabilities and ligament compromise. The other thing we're going to touch on in this episode that kind of um, goes into this because you can have multiple injuries is subluxation and dislocations. So the elbow is the second most commonly dislocated joint in adults and is usually a direct result of a traumatic injury to the elbow, most often seen as a foosh injury. Foosh, foosh injuries most commonly result in posterior lateral dislocations. Simple dislocations are defined as an acute soft tissue injury named in the direction of their displacement. So simple dislocations can result in compromise to the UCL, the RCL, and the anterior capsule. Complex dislocations can also result in fractures or other soft tissue damage. So the patient presentation, they're most often going to describe a traumatic mechanism of injury or symptom onset. I can't say I see these too often direct access in the clinic. I'd be acutely aware of these if you are seeing a lot of direct access. Most of the time, I think these patients are treated either emergently or by orthopedics before they get to therapy. Um, a lot of times you can see a deformity or an asymmetry. And the objective exam should be sure to include an assessment of neural and vascular structures because if those are compromised in dislocations and traumatic injuries, they're likely going to need some other medical attention first. So the ulnar and median nerves are more likely to be impacted by a simple dislocation and complex dislocations or fractures will more often affect that radial nerve. So non-operative management of simple dislocations, typically they're treated conservatively with a closed reduction. Even in cases of concurrent ligament compromise, when there's a dislocation, non-operative management is typically going to show a better outcome. Bracing is often common after it's reduced. However, there's not specific published guidelines on the duration of bracing. Therapy should also include gradual functional retraining, provided there is not um, continued signs and symptoms of instability. So signs and symptoms of continued instability can be noted on x-ray. Um, so as the PT, if you're concerned that the patient may be experiencing continued signs and symptoms of instability and it's limiting their progress in PT, it's appropriate to refer them back to the doctor, specifically an orthopedic. Um, sometimes, like I said, these patients haven't seen orthopedics before they initiate PT because they're reduced in the ER, they're put in a brace, and they're kind of told to go on their way. They may or may not refer them to PT. Um, further injury or further signs of chronic, more chronic instability is not always screened for or addressed in the ER. Um, so if they're not tolerating that gradual functional retraining, you want to make sure to send them back to make sure they don't have some more significant instability that needs addressed. For patients whose dislocations are reduced without other injury and they achieve that full stability, you know, these are the folks you're not concerned about having chronic instability. They're progressing as you would expect. Um, they may be more comfortable with the use of a sling. 
However, range of motion exercises should begin immediately to prevent that stiffness. Um, sometimes these patients heal well without a formal course of rehabilitation. You may see them in PT if they have extensive work or occupational demands, or they have desires to return to high-level athletic participation. When instability persists despite reduction of the dislocation, the patient's often casted, but it's important to note that stiffness and loss of motion, especially into extension, are common consequences when they're casted for more than 14 days. So if they have to go that route with their chronic instability and then end up casting them, the rehabilitation is obviously going to be much slower. In cases where it's unknown where within the range the instability may occur, that it's recommended that the therapist limit the initial extension motion to 60 degrees and increase it by 10 degrees per week. So strengthening should only begin once full range of motion is achieved when you compare it to the uninvolved side. So a couple different courses of non-operative management there for um, those types of dislocations. So operative management of simple dislocations. So surgery is going to be indicated if the dislocation becomes recurrent or if the median nerves become entrapped in the joint or if instability becomes persistent. Surgical intervention should also address any reconstruction or repair of the compromised ligament and or wrist extensor flexor muscle compromise. Um, so just be aware when they do a surgical intervention for these people, they may be doing more um, than initially planned, depending what they find when they go in. These patients are typically going to be braced for a period of time postoperatively to protect surgically repaired structures, but this timeline may vary based on surgical procedure performed and surgeon guidelines, but it can last for up to six weeks. Range of motion begin, can begin seven to 10 days after surgery, but the PT must be sure to minimize, um, to protect the healing structures. And the goal with the range of motion is to minimize stiffness from the immobilization. So you're not going crazy with range of motion. You just want to make sure you're combating kind of their prolonged immobilization risk. The greatest long-term risk of simple elbow dislocations is stiffness and limited range of motion into extension. I think clinically when I do treat elbow issues, which isn't terribly often, um, but this is by far the biggest hurdle for them to get over is to regain that extension range of motion. It's very stiff. It's often uncomfortable. Um, sometimes question whether or not there's a contracture. It can be very tough to get that extension range of motion back. Um, they're also going to have the associated pain and strength deficits that go with prolonged immobilization. Um, you, in these folks, though, um, after simple dislocations, it's important to note that they may see improvements for up to 18 months post-injury. So, um, you know, you just have to educate them. It's going to be a slow process. You have to stay on it kind of a thing. More complex elbow dislocations. We're just going to touch on this briefly. These injuries typically entail both a fracture and significant soft tissue injury, especially to the radial head in the coronoid process. These patients usually require surgical intervention with the first priority being the fracture repair or fixation, and then they'll look at any kind of ligament repair or reconstruction. Sometimes it's not always in the same surgery. Risk of stiffness is very significant in these people because they have to have so much immobilization. However, it's kind of set on the back burner. It's no, a known risk. It's kind of one of those, it's an inherent risk of having to go through this, um, but it's just you know, has to come with the territory because initially it's more crucial to achieve the structural repair and get that stability back in the joint for these people. The most common complex elbow injury is known as a terrible triad. It, this entails an elbow dislocation, a radial head fracture, and a coronoid fracture. 
usually require surgical intervention for fracture management and a LCL repair. And the research regarding the importance of a UCL repair in these folks remains variable. And so it's not always completed. Um, sometimes they'll manage the UCL compromise conservatively after they've done surgical repair for fracture or the LCL repair. Postoperative guidelines in these folks are surgeon and procedure specific, partially because so many different things could happen. Um, therefore, you're going to see a lot of variability. It's usually going to include a period of immobilization for about a week, followed by some range of motion, and then some strengthening once healing is noted on those radiographs, usually not before eight weeks. Not to say you won't see some variability in those post-op guidelines, um, but depending what they choose to do, um, if they're going to do it all in one procedure versus multiple, I think it can be very variable. So I don't know that you need to know any specific post-op protocol for complex elbow dislocations. Just be aware that you want to protect the healing tissues and strengthening is probably not going to begin for at least eight weeks. So that was kind of a lot of information about a few different elbow topics. Um, you know, when you're studying this, I know that elbow stuff is very dense. It's not one of our more commonly treated areas clinically, unless you're working probably specifically with throwers. Um, so just keep in mind the percentage of the test that the elbow is as you're studying. Hopefully this helps break down and categorize a few of the major ones. Um, as always, if you have any questions, you can certainly send us an email. Alexis, do you have anything else you want to add on some of this elbow content? I don't think so. I think that was a... That's pretty good. Good. The one thing I will say is don't forget about your epicondylitis tendinopathy management diagnoses at the elbow. Those are in a different episode that we've done previously. Mm -hmm. So just don't ignore yeah. those. Those are absolutely relevant. Yes, absolutely. All righty. Take care. <laughs>